It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. A while ago, I was involved with a charity, and the trustees decided what we needed to do was a promotional video summing up who the charity was, what we do. I thought that'd be fairly straightforward. But it costs a huge amount of money, and a great deal of care is taken with every image, every word, because you've only got a minute, and people look at that, and they think, that's who they are. Well, I don't know what John was thinking as he wrote his gospel, but I I think it's as if he's giving us arrows to point at this particular section. Up to now, we've gone at a fast pace, 12 chapters, two years. And then in the last chapter, Jesus finally reaches Jerusalem, and it's the beginning of the end, and the pace slows down. And from chapter 13, right through to the end of chapter 17, we've just got three days Well, that kind of time, a very short time, the time where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He's about to be betrayed, about to be crucified. And as the narrative slows down, this is the scene that John wants us to have in our minds. It's as if he's saying, do you want to understand Jesus? Think of this scene. Do you want to understand Jesus? See this dramatic act. Listen to his words. And I don't think it's just John. 
it seems quite clear that Jesus has deliberately staged, managed what's going on. And he says to Peter and the other disciples, watch this. If you want to know who I am, what I've come for, if you want to know what I demand, think of this scene. So this is big for some. It's very big. You're here today, you're not quite sure about the Christian faith. It's a great passage to think about because all the key elements are here. Jesus' identity, who is he? Jesus' mission, why did he come? Jesus' call, what does he demand? And for the rest of us who are Christians, how easily we drift from these essential foundations. And I hope very much we'll be brought back that we might understand again and be reminded who Jesus is and what he asks of us. So let me pray as we begin. Loving Father, please may this scene and these words by your Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts that we might understand the Lord Jesus, understand what he's offering to do for us, understand what he calls on us to do as his servants. We pray in his name. Amen. Identity, mission, call. Identity, first of all. That's the first five verses. And John signals why the pace is slowing. He says at the beginning, verse 1, it was just before the Passover festival. That will prove significant. Because the Passover was the time when they remembered the death of the Passover lamb. We've been thinking of Exodus in the mornings. And the Passover lamb died instead of the firstborn son as a sacrifice that the firstborn needn't die when God's agent of death, the judgment, passes through the land. And John will want us to know that Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb. He's preparing for his death. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come. Well, more on that later, but that's a phrase that comes again and again through John's gospel. We're waiting for the hour, and John is saying, this is the moment that this gospel's been heading towards. Jesus knew it was the decisive moment to which his whole life had been heading. And John wants us first to remember, who is acting in this remarkable drama? The focus is on his character. Having loved his own, verse 1, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he's saying all that's about to happen, it's driven by love. And of course that is true of everything in Jesus' life. It was love that brought him to the world. It was love that dominated all his interactions, never marked by any of the prejudices that pollute all our human interactions to some degree. He loved men and women. He loved Jews, his own people, and Gentiles. He loved the rich and the poor. And here the focus is on his own, those he's called to follow him. And we're told he loved them to the end. Another translation might be to the uttermost, to the greatest ultimate extent. Here is astonishing love, but also, John wants us to know, amazing power. And that combination does not always go together. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew. One writer 
once said this, Jesus' rage at the activities of the moneylenders would be as nothing compared to his anger at those Christians who turned him into a god. You see the, the claim that Jesus is a good moral teacher, he's going around the world being nice to people, and then Christians later put words in his mouth and as it were made him into a God that they worship and Jesus is a good Jew who believed that there was only one God would have been absolutely horrified that anyone would worship him as God. But that has failed to recognize that the only evidence that we have for Jesus which goes right back to the first century reveals at every point an astonishing self-conscious authority. A man of amazing love and humility this particular incident, above all, perhaps, apart from his death, proves that. Amazing humility, and yet astonishing awareness of his glory and power. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All things doesn't leave a lot out, does it? Everything. Past, present, future. The whole universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, and everything on it. Animal, vegetable, mineral. Peasants, paupers, princes, slaves, emperors, everyone. He knew. He knew the Father had put all things under his power. He knew that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So, verse 4, if you didn't know what was coming, what would you expect? He knew that he was the divine son of God. He knew that all power was in his hands. And so, I've told some of you before that in a year before I went to university, I did various jobs. And one of the jobs was to work in Harrods store in London, very smart department store in their sale. It was very, very busy. Long, long queues. I was selling suits and I was just taking the, the cash or the checks. And... Although there was a long queue, one man, an American man, stormed to the front and came right up to me and he laid his suit at the desk. And I said, excuse me, so sorry, there's a queue. If you mind just going to the back, we've been trained to be very polite. At which he said, do you know who I am? I said, no, sir, I'm afraid I don't. He said, does anyone here know who I am? And the man next to me, who was also a gap year student, he said, yes, you're Mel Brooks, aren't you? Now, Mel Brooks was an, American, was an American film actor, American producer, and immediately the guy said, well done, sir. Got out a couple of tickets, gave me a couple of tickets, and got served. I was, I've never quite forgiven for that man for <laughs> serving him, and then out he went. You see, Mel Brooks knew who he was, a global celebrity. So he went to the front of the queue, because queues are not for global celebrities. But Jesus knew who he was, that all power had been entrusted to him. And so what did he do? Verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. You can just imagine the discomfort of the disciples. Because this was a job reserved for slaves. People would have worn sandals, and as they go around, inevitably their feet would get dirty, and the first thing they'd do is take the sandals off when they arrived, and then the slave would get down on his knees and clean the feet, wash the feet. This is a very demeaning job. 
but there's no slave with them. And so no one moves because no one wants to be the one who demeans himself before the others. So no one's done that demeaning job. Without a word, Jesus prepares himself for action. Takes off his outer clothing, puts the towel around his waist as a slave would do, pours the water into the basin. And they're thinking, he's not really going to do this, is he? But he really does. The meal in those days, they would have had their feet out to the back, reclining towards the meal. And Jesus went round the back and knelt on his knees and began to wash their feet. We're not used to power being used in that kind of way. Some of you know that I love the books by Robert Caro on Lyndon Johnson, four so far, uh, one to come. We're waiting. He's in his mid-80s, so we're really hoping he'll survive long enough to, uh, to write the final volume. Lyndon Johnson, President of the United States in the 1960s, and a horrible man. I mean, a really horrible man. A genius at getting power for himself and using it for himself. Caro comments, that in Johnson you could see a hunger for power in its most naked form. Not to improve the lives of others, but to manipulate and dominate them, to bend them to his will. One crucial qualification he looked for in his staff was complete subservience, so they would do any task at any time, day or night. One who was offered a job, and you'd think this is a great thing, to be offered a job by Lyndon Johnson, turned it down, he was asked why he wouldn't take the post. He said, because I knew I'd be devoured. And we've seen people far, far too often devoured by abuses of power. And perhaps you've experienced something of that from a boss, from a teacher. Very sadly, maybe even a pastor. Closer to home, a parent, a partner. But of course, the closer it comes, the deeper the wound is. And perhaps you wonder to yourself, can I really trust anyone again? It might even be subconscious, might be very conscious. You put a coat of steel around you. I'm not going to trust anyone in that way. I'm not going to let anyone hurt me like that. But here is one you can trust. It might even be someone here who fear that you'll be devoured by Jesus if you, as it were, fall on your knees before him and let him take control of your life, that he'll gobble you up because you've been gobbled up by others. But no, here is one who has all power. He's on his knees washing his disciples' feet. Who is he? The servant king. The one of astonishing love and power. There's his identity. But next, this wonderful visual snapshot with the words attached focuses also on his mission. Verses 6 to 11. He goes to Peter. He's by his feet. And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? No, Lord, it's all wrong. And Jesus replies, verse 7, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. 
And see, it's a pointer to what he's about to do. And he's saying to Peter, you won't get it now, but you will then. When you see me hanging on a cross, when you understand why I must die, then you'll get it. Well, other words, there's a very deliberate link in Jesus' teaching between what he's doing now and what he's about to do then. It's an active parable. It's a visual aid. Remember, we're told in verse 1, the hour had come. And that word, the hour, has been used again and again in John's Gospel. So in the, in the second chapter, Jesus is at a wedding feast. The wine runs out. His mother comes to him and says, Jesus, you better sort this out. And he says, no, my hour has not yet come. He does, in the end, perform the miracle, but he's conscious this is not the moment when his glory will be revealed to its fullness. And all through the gospel, there are references to, references to this hour. There's increasing opposition, but they don't yet completely take him over. No one sees him, because we're told, chapter 8, his hour had not yet come. And the irony is, his time of greatest glory will be his time of greatest humiliation. His, his hour, his decisive moment, is his death. And then in verse 23 of chapter 12, at last we're told by Jesus, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's in Jerusalem, reaching the big moment to which his whole life was pointing. And this was no accident. See, just as Jesus chose to take off his outer garments, just as he chose to pour the water and get down on his knees, and he chose to wash their feet, so Jesus chose to give up his life. He chose to go up on the cross. He chose to die for the sins of others. Peter doesn't get it yet. He says, verse 8, no, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And so it is for all of us. Unless we allow Jesus to wash us, we cannot relate to him. And the assumption there is that we are unclean. We are unfit to be friends of God and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes I think we know it. We feel it. Think of a teenager who went to a youth group run by some friends of mine, and she'd never been to the youth group before. She wasn't a Christian. She'd been invited by friends. And she was wearing a, a very grossly offensive T-shirt. And the, the leaders talked to themselves, and they, they didn't want to put her off. And, and she'd just come. It was marvelous. But at the same time, this was so offensive, they thought they ought to have a word. And so um, one of my friends went alongside and said, I hope you don't mind, but would you mind just covering that up? Because um, I don't think it's appropriate here. Well, it, she did, and they were worried whether she'd ever come back again. She came back the next week, and my friend said to her, so great to see you back. Um, and she said, oh, no, I came back, and um, I'm sorry about the T-shirt. I don't want to be dirty, she said. I don't want to be dirty. And there was a, a heart cry, recognition that there was something that wasn't right. And my friend was able to point to her, to the Lord Jesus, who died that she could be clean. And it may be that you're someone who's not a Christian, but you, you're conscious that you're not as you should be. And you're not fit for the presence of God. 
And there's wonderful news for you because you are saying, I need cleansing. And Jesus died on the cross to make that cleansing possible. And this visual aid is a reminder that Jesus died to bring cleansing to those who don't deserve to be pure and white in his presence. As Jesus took upon himself all the mess and the dirt of our wrongdoing. And then if we come to him, gives to us his perfect righteousness, perfect cleansing. So Jesus said, unless I wash you, you've got no part with me. To which Peter says, verse 9, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's all, all in, is Peter. Jesus answered, verse 10, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. What he's saying is this, if you're filthy and you, you have a bath, and then you walk around the corner to your friend's house, you might get a bit of dirt on, on your feet, and so you, your feet are clean, but, but you don't need a bath because you've just had a bath. And what Jesus is saying is, these disciples, they, they've trusted in him. They belong to him. They're already clean. So he's not appealing to them to come to him for the first time. They, they've already done that. And because of what he will do in his death on the cross, they're cleansed. But not every one of you, he's surely talking about Judas, who outwardly looked as if he was part of them, but in his heart had not submitted to Jesus in his heart, he was still resisting Jesus. And in the end, he betrayed him. It's just a reminder that it's possible to be outwardly part of the family of God. To be in church. To sing the songs, to say all the right things. But never actually to have gone down on our knees and said, I need you to cleanse me, Jesus. And then please help me to live for you. Maybe that's something you need to do tonight. But for the rest of us, He's saying, look, you don't need to be cleansed all over again. We can get confused, I think, about what happens when we say a prayer of confession. And when we receive the Lord's Supper. And sometimes we can end up thinking, oh yes, I, I, I've been cleansed. Once I say sorry to Jesus, I've been cleansed of all the sins I've committed up to then. Or when I take the Lord's Supper and that reminds me and I'm trusting again in Jesus' death. That deals with all those sins up to then. But if I sin again, well, I, I get grubby and I need to go back for another confession or another communion. And I've failed to understand that if I put my trust in Jesus, I am completely clean. And he's cleansed me of all my sins, past, present, and future. And what I'm doing when I'm saying sorry is not, oh, I need to do this, otherwise I've been rejected by you. Otherwise, just imagine it. I mean, every single sin I'd need to confess, and most of the sins I commit, I don't even know I've done. Now, this is relational. Just as you might say sorry to your closest loved one. Not because you're worried that if you don't say sorry, they'll kick you out of the house and never speak to you again, but because you love them and you've hurt them and you want to say sorry, you want that relationship to be close. If we trusted in him, we're clean. And let's delight in that amazing truth. And some of you... You've trusted in Jesus, but you still feel dirty. Well, maybe you do need to say, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I hope you did that earlier, meant it when you said that prayer of confession. But don't go on thinking that somehow that 
stains you. Jesus took that stain. And he's given you perfect cleansing. You're washed. Identity. He's a servant king. Mission. He came to die. And that's the ultimate form of humble service. That he might cleanse us. And then finally, called, verses 12 to 17. What does he call on us as his disciples? Jesus, verse 12, has got his clothes back on. And he says, do you, want to, do you understand what I've done for you? And then verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's. He said, what I've done for you now is a model for you to follow. Not literally, of course. But this is a symbol of our attitude and actions towards one another. And if we take these things into our hearts and allow them to live out, that will be utterly revolutionary. See, the shock is not simply what Jesus did, going down on his feet and, and, and washing... Oh, on his knees rather than washing the feet of those disciples. It's not just what he did, but who did it? Teacher and Lord. The teacher serves his pupils. The Lord on his knees before his disciples' feet, who should have been on their knees worshipping him. It's a complete reversal of status and what we expect from status. The world's obsessed with status and we know ourselves, instinctively we are too. Instinctively, in just about any context you're in, there's a scale and you're aware of it. And you're vaguely aware of those people who are above you on the scale and they're the ones you, you want to be impressed by you. They're the ones you want to be seen with. And then there are others who are beneath you on the scale. And they're the ones that you can afford to ignore because... They're not going to help you gain more status, which is what, for many in the world, life is all about, just getting up the ladder. And different things matter to different people. So for some, it might be the academic ladder. It's all about doing better at exams, getting those GCSE results, A-level results, getting into that particular university. For others, it's about career. For others, it's about social status, and popularity. Others still sport, music, whatever it might be. For most of us, we find ourselves concerned about a whole variety of those scales. And it happens instinctively. And so that's the way we look. Well, automatically, there'll be some people more important than others. And some people that it won't be demeaning to serve, it's appropriate and could be helpful to us. But other people... Well, actually, frankly, even spending time with them will demean us. If people look around and think, oh, I thought he was quite an impressive person. I thought she was quite popular. What are they doing talking to that lot? Even just talking with them is demeaning. And Jesus smashes all that. Absolutely smashes it. Because he's the one with ultimate status. He could not be higher and he ended up as the lowest of the low. 
although in very nature God, as the Apostle Paul puts it. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung onto, but he entered himself. He divested himself of the glory that was due to him from eternity, and he became a man, and not just any old man, he became a servant. A servant who was willing to die for others, and not just any old death, but the most shameful death of all, even death on a cross. And he did it that he might lift you and me up. And the only way we can be lifted up is if we recognize we need it. It's quite a humbling thing to say, I need a bath. Or to be bathed by someone else. I visited an elderly man in, in hospital a while back and it was very, very hard for him to be bathed. He had to have a nurse washing him because he couldn't wash himself. That's humiliating, isn't it, for a man who had a significantly, significant status when he was younger. And all of us have to say to Jesus, I need you to cleanse me. And we have to go very low and acknowledge we're dirty. And then we are lifted up. And that is our status as those who deserve nothing from God but has given everything by his amazing grace. I, I couldn't really be more privileged than that. I couldn't really have a higher status than being the son or daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, absolutely clean in his sight and his friend. Well, that means if we grasp these things, I don't have to think about status. My identity does not depend on whether I beat you in that exam. My identity does not depend on whether you think I'm attractive and popular. And so when I go to that party, I don't have to be thinking, who are the beautiful people? Who are the popular people? Who's the in crowd that I really want to be seen with? I can go and think, I'm secure in Christ. Who can I encourage? Who's on the fringe of things that no one else is noticing? Who's feeling awkward? Who's rather laughed at and despised? Well, they're the people I can welcome and draw in. Or in the workplace, I don't just have to think about the boss and be willing to do anything and run around for her. Because if she likes me, then I might get promotion. No, I can notice the person who's just finishing cleaning, having been up probably for three hours before I've even got in. Ask her her name. Remember it when I next see her. Even offer to help when there's a table that's in the way. Can you imagine the boss of a vast company lifting a desk to help a cleaner? It's demeaning, isn't it? Well, not for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself that he might cleanse us. This is radical. And it's the picture that John wants in our minds. As he says, do you want to understand Jesus? Do you want to understand Christianity? His identity. Yes, all power. But he loved sacrificially the servant king. His mission is for those 
her dirty to make us clean. And he took him to the cross. And his call is to do as he did. And to not think about status and to strut around feeling good about ourselves or to be desperately insecure and try and climb up, but to lovingly serve anyone, whatever the cost, for his glory. Let's pray. Just a moment of silence as we think about what particular we need to hear, what we need to remember, what we need to ask God's help to apply. Loving Father, we thank you for the astonishing humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for any here who've not yet be, been cleansed by him. Help them to humble themselves before him and to be washed by his blood. For the rest of us, help us to delight in that cleansing, to know we really are fit for your presence because he died for us. And then may we be so grasped, so excited, so thrilled by our identity and status in Christ that we're prepared to humble ourselves and serve anyone and everyone for your glory. Amen. Amen.